Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Thank you, Alan, and it's great to be with you tonight on the ever-expanding ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. If you're watching on a computer and haven't downloaded our app yet, go to the App Store, Google Play Store or Apple TV and search for ADH TV. You'll find all our content there live and on demand, and it's free. You can also find us wherever you download your audio programs. Just search for Fred Paul. Well, it's the start of a new week and the battle lines are already drawn. China is spoiling for war in our region. United States President Joe Biden is fighting a recession by redefining the word's definition. Some experts are warning that the shutting down of European farms and fertilizer supply chains will spark a cascading global famine starting in a month or two. And the war in Ukraine is the catalyst for energy shortages that will force millions of Europeans to freeze in the dark this winter. Back in the more prosperous 1980s and 90s, it was cool to think that Mondays could be a happy day of the week. There was even a successful band that went by the name The Happy Mondays. They were still clinging to their former success playing occasional gigs in Britain last month when Paul Ryder, an original member, suddenly died. His death isn't the only reason Monday has lost its silver lining this week. Bob Geldof and the Boomtown Rats were more prescient when they asked... Well, we here at ADH try to keep a cheery outlook regardless of the grim news all around us. But on this particular Monday, it's difficult to not be a little despondent. How bad are things really today? Well, never mind the looming war, famine and possibly long-term economic recession, China has thrown down its most audacious gauntlet yet by withdrawing not only from the rules-based world order and launching missiles over Taiwan and towards Japan, one of the eight diplomatic responses it made to Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last week was to withdraw from bilateral talks with the United States to alleviate, you guessed it, climate change. This caused the usual panic among the usual suspects. Under the headline, what does the US-China row mean for climate change? The Guardian quoted European Climate Foundation chief Lawrence Tubiana saying, quote, while you can freeze talks, you can't freeze climate impacts, unquote. Well, if that's the case, thank goodness for Anthony Albanese's, Albanese's climate change bill, which passed the Australian House of Representatives last week. Albo is now being portrayed by the left-wing media as the man who single-handedly ended the so-called climate wars here in Australia. Like British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returning from Germany in 1938, waving around the Munich Agreement and claiming peace for our time, Albo can now attend United Nations climate summits, climate summits hold his legislated emissions targets aloft and declare fewer extreme weather events by 2030. 
But will this only make the lives of ordinary Australians like you and me poorer, colder and more miserable? I'll be asking my guest, former Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker, that question later in the show. I'll also talk to the effervescent Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs, who somehow manages to, to remain happy even under the jackbooted regime of Victorian Premier Dan Andrews. There's plenty to keep you informed and I hope happy at the start of this dramatic week. Now, let's get on with the show. Now, the implicit advantage of renewable energy is that other forms of energy are not renewable. Gas, coal and oil will one day, very soon, run out and to avoid society grinding to a halt, we must deliberately transition to renewables as soon as possible and at whatever cost. Anthony Albanese has been unequivocal about this from the minute he became Prime Minister in May. The future will inevitably be powered by renewables, he keeps telling us, which are secure, abundant and clean. Only trouble is, they're not. Renewable energy is irregular and the technology that, that transforms it into electricity, such as giant windmills, solar panels and batteries, are mostly toxic and impossible to recycle once their short, useful life is over. Albo won't admit it, but one result of Australia becoming a renewable energy superpower will be tons of old windmills and solar panels dumped in landfill and exhausted batteries lying around leaching their toxic contents back into the environment. The tragedy is that the original forms of energy generation, such as oil, gas and coal, are far more abundant than the rush to renewables suggest they are. Human ingenuity, which is our ultimate renewable resource, has unlocked new ways of finding and safely extracting these resources. The new gas field at Beetaloo, for example, in the Northern Territory, could power Australia for an estimated 200 years. Why do we need renewables again? As I said last week, sustainability is a new religion and the power of renewables is one of its fundamental beliefs. Renewables will deliver the faithful to a new Garden of Eden, where trees grow wind turbines, mountains are made of solar panels and lithium-ion batteries grow like potatoes in the naturally fertile soil. If that all sounds ridiculous, it's because it is. As we can see already in Europe, the transition to renewables is nothing but an absolute disaster, especially for ordinary people many of who will freeze in the dark this winter. Former British member of the European Parliament, Dan Hannan, says Russian President Vladimir Putin and the war in Ukraine are commonly and incorrectly accused of being the main cause of energy shortages in Europe. Writing in the Telegraph of London, he says, quote, the calamity into which we are heading this winter represents a failure of policy under successive governments going back decades. We are in this mess because for most of the 21st century we have ignored economic reality in pursuit of theatrical decarbonisation. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Hannan says regarding the abundant and cheap forms of energy like coal, gas and oil, quote, the idea that a cheap, cheaper energy is a positive good, that it reduces poverty and gives people more leisure time, has, almost, has been almost wholly lost. We have convinced ourselves that if it isn't hurting, it isn't working. The reason we slip so easily into talk about banning and rationing is not just that the lockdown has left us readier to be bossed about, it is that we have come to regard the use of power as a sinful indulgence, unquote. Try to remember that line next time you, hear, you see Adam Bant or any of the other hectoring harridans of the Green or Teal parties accuse resource companies of greed for providing you with cheap fuel to run your car or operate your business. 
This joyless pessimism is a common characteristic of environmentalists and leftists. We saw the same reaction last week when we learned the wonderful news that the Great Barrier Reef, one of the natural beauties of the world, was in historically rude health. Most normal people responded happily and perhaps also thought for a moment that the experts who warned us that the, that the reef was in danger in the first place were possibly exaggerating. Some might even have gone online and booked a holiday to the reef to immerse themselves in its natural wonders. But other people were not so overjoyed by the news. The Conversation, a website for academics discussing current affairs, said the latest figures about the reef might seem like excellent news, but this, quote, doesn't necessarily mean our beloved reef is in good health. It went on, quote, high coral cover can be deceptive because they can result from only a few dominant species that grow rapidly after disturbance, such as mass bleaching. These same corals, however, are extremely susceptible to disturbance and are likely to die out within a few years." Unquote. Stop me if you've heard this before. As recently as March, a mere five months ago, other experts were still warning that the reef was going to die. The Climate Council released a report titled in hot water, climate change, marine heat waves and coral bleaching. In it, the council said the prospect for the Great Barrier Reef was dire. Modelling in January predicted a quote, build up of heat stress with the potential for mass bleaching, unquote. This catastrophe was averted by February and March being cloudier than usual, but in the environmentalist world, every silver lining has a cloud. The report went on, quote, a severe extreme heat wave across North Queensland in early March reignited concern. Waters offshore from Townsville were up to three degrees Celsius above average and low to moderate coral bleaching was recorded across multiple areas of the Great Barrier Reef, unquote. The only way for our marine ecosystems to survive, the report said, is for Australia to cut its emissions this decade, not by 43% as Albo later promised, but by 75%. The report said, quote, with the window for action closing fast, doing what it takes to protect our ocean's wonders is also key to avoiding, you guessed it, catastrophic global warming, unquote. Would that be the same catastrophic global warming that climate huckster Al Gore predicted in 2008 would melt the polar ice caps by 2013? The same catastrophism that we have been hearing about for half a century but never happens? A decent political leader would see this pattern of failed alarmism and dismiss it as an expensive hoax. After all, it's not as if our government shouldn't be busy enough preparing us for the far more real threats of war, famine and recession. Now, Western companies that want to access the huge and lucrative Chinese domestic market know they can only do so on one condition. Don't criticise the regime's human rights record. For most of them, it's a deal they are ha more than happy to make. The American National Basketball Association constantly laments about racial injustice in the United States while aggressively expanding into the booming Chinese market. It learned not to criticise the Chinese regime in 2019 when Houston Rockets manager Daryl Morey posted on Twitter, quote, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. The NBA immediately issued an apology saying Morey had, quote, undoubtedly severely hurt the feelings of Chinese fans. Meanwhile, American Sonny Weems, who plays in the domestic Chinese basketball competition, was called the N-word and told to get out of China in January this year, according to a video obtained by CNN. Another woke behemoth, Disney, refuses to shoot any of its films in the US state of Georgia because of an anti-abortion law. Yet it filmed its blockbuster Mulan in Xinjiang province, 
the very same province where the CCP has Uyghur concentration camps. Well, now we can add another company to this list. Last week, Mars Rigby, Wrigley, the maker of the Snickers bar, apologised for a Snickers product launch, which the Chinese said suggested Taiwan was a country. God forbid. It's not as if Snickers was being deliberately provocative. It had simply said that a limited edition of the chocolate bar was only available in the countries of South Korea, Malaysia and Taiwan. It wasn't a choosing the Communist Party of harvesting the human organs of members of the peaceful Falun Gong community and selling them for market, on the market for transplants, which is actually true. But still, when the chocolate hit the fan, Snickers kowtowed. In a groveling statement, it said it, quote, respects China's national sovereignty, sovereignty and territorial integrity and conducts its business operations in strict compliance with local Chinese laws and regulations, unquote. In response, Chinese social media users piled on, including one comment that said, quote, say it, Taiwan is an inseparable part of Chinese territory, unquote. It attracted 8,000 likes. The apology worked, which in itself is a bit surprising. High profile apologies have a tendency to be rejected at least in Australia these days. The outcome is a happy one for all involved. Chinese people can still get flabby on Mars Wrigley's extravagantly sugary chocolate bar while their government flaxes its muscles in the boardrooms of American, com American companies. Snickers' old slogan used to be, you're not, you're not you when you're hungry. Perhaps they should change it to you're not Taiwanese even when you're in Taiwan. Now, one of the mysteries of climate change policies is who are they intended to please? There will always be a section of the Australian community that thinks green policies should be pursued regardless of the cost, partly because that cost is met by other people, not themselves. But a large number of us remain skeptical about what's in it for us because the benefits are often vague perhaps even deliberately so. One of the few tangible benefits we are constantly told about is the approval these policies receive at international conferences. Indeed, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese recently said Australia had spent nine years in the quote, naughty corner of these conferences under the previous coalition government. Do we care if our elected representatives are shunned by the cool kids at these climate love-ins? My guess is we don't. They'd arguably earn more respect for being resolute outsiders amid this flock of sheep representing the interests of their real constituents, not the consensus of an elite cabal. In a minute, I'm going to ask my first guest, the brilliant former Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker, if all this focus on green energy is really for our benefit. But first, the Coalition's wonderful new Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Nampajinpa-Price made quite an impact in our parliament last week, delivering a historic speech that diverted from the inner-city woke Indigenous politics and instead pleaded for immediate help for Australia's most vulnerable and disadvantaged people. The response from the left-wing media was mostly adversarial but polite. But this morning, it was reported that Nine Newspapers columnist Peter Fitzsimons was rude to Price in a phone interview on Thursday. Price was quoted saying Fitzsimons had been condescending, his interview style was aggressive, and he had accused her of, quote, somehow giving power to racists, unquote. Fitzsimons responded by saying the claims were nonsense and the interview had been a, quote, professional exchange. Well, let's bring in former Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker to discuss this. Amanda, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks very much for having me. Amanda, who are you inclined to believe in this situation, Price or Fitzsimons? Well, like I've got to declare a bias here because I'm really good friends with Jacinta Price um, and I trust her enormously. And so I'm inclined to trust the person I know to be an honourable person in our, in our private dealings. 
However, Mr. Fitzsimons has said he recorded the thing with her consent. So if he's recorded it and he's behaved in the way that he has said he has behaved, he should have no hesitation in releasing it. It is very interesting to have um, somebody who is such an enthusiast for identity politics, himself an inner city white male, telling an Indigenous woman from a remote community what views she should or shouldn't have on um, questions of the policy that's needed to advance the lives of her very own community. I don't think we can elaborate on that enough, to be honest. He's a rich, woke, white man who claims to sympathise with Indigenous people and he's disagreeing with an Indigenous woman whose family has endured their share of disadvantage and violence over the years. Uh, how's the irony of this, Amanda? Do you find it amusing? I mean, it's tragic as well, but surely it's kind of funny too. Well, look, the irony in it is a little bit humorous um, because it seems that Mr Fitzsimons has very little insight as to how, um, how much he offends the precepts of the ideology he so actively fights for in his um, public contributions. Personally, I don't love the identity politics approach to things. Personally, I think we should judge people on the quality of what they say rather than the quality um, of the colour of their skin, for instance. But you cannot argue with the quality of the experience um, of this disadvantage and of these challenges that Jacinta Price brings to the Senate. She knows the stuff. So mm. rather than lecturing to her, let's get on with it. One of the questions Fitzsimons asked was, quote, does it ever bother you to look around you and see that among your supporters are people with little or no respect for Aboriginal people, unquote. He was citing in particular Pauline Hanson, who is, like you were, a Queensland senator. Amanda, is this correct? Does Pauline Hanson have no respect for Aboriginal people? Look, I think blanket claims like that are always dangerous. Um, you know, the, as they say, the, the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every person. There are no plain good or plain bad people and everyone's a work in progress. I think it's also unfair to try and tar a senator with the sins of the people somewhere out in the community who might have done something wrong or might have a view that they might disagree with. Um, the nature of being a public figure is you need to listen to and talk to people from all walks of life, from all different political perspectives and from views that disagree with your own. It's part of the reason why I fought so hard against efforts made by then Senator Christina Keneally to try and de-platform me for speaking to people with whom she disagreed. Um, she tried to suggest that by talking to someone whose view she didn't like, I got by some sort of magical transference tarred with whatever views that person held. You can't be a good representative unless you listen to and talk with people from all walks of life and from all points in the spectrum of belief. Well, one of the comments Fitzsimons didn't seem to understand is that Price sees herself as not just Indigenous. She's first and foremost an Australian and a proud one at that. He then ends the interview with the excruciating question, quote, are you absolutely sure that you are doing and saying the right thing? Unquote. His lack of respect is, to put it bluntly, Amanda, quite astonishing. How, how do we resolve this kind of impasse? You know, if you had asked that question of another Indigenous member of parliament, let's say um, Lydia Thorpe, you'd be accused of gaslighting, of um, undermining that person's confidence in their own beliefs by repeatedly suggesting they're mistaken. It's very funny how differently these things are when the shoe is on the other foot. Okay, now let's move to Chinese aggression in our region, which is getting uh, pretty intense. China responded to, Ch to Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last week by sending fighter jets to fly around Taiwan and shooting missiles into the adjacent sea. It was a show of aggression, but as usual, it has thankfully ended without escalating into conflict so far. 
At the same time, there seems to be conflicting interpretations of China's real military strength. Amanda, where do you sit on this? How much of a threat is China really? Look, I think um, it's true to say that China is growing in its economic and military strength. It is growing in its confidence. But part of the reason it's growing in confidence is that it has been throwing its weight around in the international arena, um, regularly imposing demands, regularly having other nations acquiesce to them. Um, and that's exactly the kind of schoolyard bullying behaviour um, that empowers a bully to engage in that behaviour more. I don't think China's defence is as strong as they project it to be. Um, I think that it would be a problem, a very big one for China if there were to be a conflict to escalate now. That said, all the bullying and bluster does matter. And unless you have nations willing to stand up, to be strong, to be forthright about their own interests and to be unwilling to kowtow to what are so regularly being framed as demands from those in the Chinese leadership, um, we will continue to find this kind of escalating behaviour. It's vital, I think, that nations act with um, the robustness that reflects the reality of the situation um, rather than being fearful. In some ways, delay of the crystallisation of that strength plays into China's long-term strategic interests. Well, American President Joe Biden spoke to his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping on the phone as recently as July 28. Uh, in that, they discussed aspects of the relationship where they can work together and tried to keep other aspects of the relationship from getting out of hand. Joe's relationship with China is, as we know from recent revelations about his family's business dealings, a kind of strong and complex one. Nancy's visit to Taiwan will have made it a lot more complicated for him. Amanda, do you think Joe will call his son Hunter out of semi-retirement and fly him to J Beijing to patch things up with the Chinese Communist Party? <laughs> Look, anything's possible in circumstances where um, Mr Biden seems to be a little bit confused and in some ways a little bit desperate. Um, I think nothing's off the table. But the long-term strategic interests of the US of Australia, of the UK, of the entire Western world lie with a unified, clear and strong position that says we don't take orders from the Chinese leadership, but we are willing to engage constructively and proactively as trading partners, as cooperating entities in a world where everyone needs to get along. Um, they are worlds apart from constantly acquiescing to demands. Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong was pretty quick to criticise China. She, she said China's response was, quote, disproportionate and destabilising. They're obviously very carefully chosen words. Amanda, do you think she got them right? Look, I think they're very diplomatically chosen words, um, but they are accurate. Um, the decision to launch into um, what is effectively a military scare operation in response to something as small as a US elected officer visiting um, is, I think, quite bizarre, quite disproportionate, um, and there's plenty of room for greater strength from Ms Wong, but her words are not wrong. Well said. Now let's talk about Australian culture, shall we? As you probably know, having worked in Canberra for some years, Australian culture would be an aimless exercise in Philistinism if not for the federal government's financial and moral support. The incoming government has rekindled this nice little earner for its friends in the arts industry by establishing five, that's five, review panels to review submissions to its national cultural policy. Amanda, did you get a gig on one of these panels? And if not, why not? 
Look, no, I did. <laughs> Although I wasn't expecting a um, a long line of job offers from the Labor government, given the uh, positions I take on most things. But um, what I think is really interesting and somewhat troubling about this is that culture isn't something that gets imposed upon a nation from above. Culture emerges from the creativity and the daily thoughts and actions of citizens going about their daily lives. And so the idea that you can impose from above a cultural strategy that's going to somehow efficiently or productively direct the efforts of those in the artistic community is really um, sort of a little bit flipping the way that the creative sector works. It's, I think, indicative of the way that Labor intends to use um, the notion of cultural grants to feed their friends um, rather than to foster and reward those cultural and creative organisations that don't just produce great work but have great work that is recognised and supported by the philanthropic and private sectors because of its quality. A very good indicator of great quality in the arts is when it is able to bring on um, financial support um, from you know, the real world, so to speak, rather than just from um, boffins and the bureaucracy. So I hope that as they put together this uh, little bit Stalinist-style strategy, um, they keep in mind the fact that the best indicator of effective cultural organisations um, is their ability to effectively engage with the kind of support from the real world that translates into tickets sold, sponsorships from the corporate sector in the real world, bums on seats. Well said. Amanda Stoker, thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Amanda Stoker, whose common sense is sorely missed in the Australian Parliament these days. Now, integrity in government has become a big issue with politicians these days. We now have a corruption commission in every state, and now Anthony Albanese has arrived in the Prime Minister's office, claiming he has a mandate to introduce a federal one as well. Never mind that Albo's 32% of the primary vote suggests he hardly has a mandate to do anything, but that doesn't stop him acting like he's won in a landslide. These proposals are always made with the sanctimony of a Marxist vegan at an Australia Day barbecue. Albo said his commission will, quote, make a permanent and much needed change to standards of integrity and accountability in the federal government, unquote. And we need one because, quote, corruption in the federal government has been growing over recent years, unquote. Really? How does he know? And if he does know, why doesn't he just tell the federal cops and get the alleged, alleged crooks charged? Then they can have their day in open court and their innocence or otherwise will be a matter for the public record. Isn't that how our system works? The reason you don't hear people talking about this in pubs is that they don't want to talk about it. You'd think the extortionate amount of tax we pay at least afforded us the luxury of not, ha of not having to wonder how many people on the public payroll are also trousering wads of cash under the table. But no, Albo tells us that there is corruption everywhere in our bloated public service and the answer is to, wait for it, increase the size of the public service. Here's an interesting statistic. There are 2.1 million public servants in Australia, which is 7.7% of the total population. In Singapore, there are only 153,000 public servants, a mere 2.6% of the population. Guess which country has less government corruption? Instead of throwing money at a new extrajudiciary kangaroo court, why doesn't Albo fly a few junior ministers to Singapore to find out how they do it? Politicians are so caught up in their own world that they think their extravagant effort efforts to root out corruption in their own bureaucracy will earn our gratitude. The hell it will. We just want a bureaucracy that has no corruption in it in the first place. Which brings me to Victoria. Premier Dan Andrews was shocked last month when the independent broad-based anti-corruption commission handed down a report that found senior Labor officials had for decades actively encouraged forgery, attempts to interfere with government grants, branch stacking, bullying and nepotism. 
The report found no misdeeds by Andrews himself, but he took responsibility for it, saying he would implement the report's recommendations. Now, even the opposition party is embroiled in this stuff. Last week, opposition leader Matthew Guy's chief of staff resigned after it was revealed he sought private funding for himself from a donor. This didn't break any codes of conduct, but it did raise questions about the opposition at a time when it should be on the front foot attacking one of the most authoritarian governments in Australian history. Integrity is now shaping up as a key issue in the state election due this November, when the real issue should be the heartlessness of the world's most draconian lockdowns and a strategy to get the state back on its feet. How do Victorians feel about this? Well, let's ask the brilliant Gideon Rosner from the Institute of Public Affairs. Gideon, welcome to the show. Great to be here, my friend. Great to be here. Congratulations on the new show. I'm watching it. It is fantastic. I'm watching ADH. What ADH is doing is fantastic. Uh, this is my ADH debut, would you have you believe? So uh, great to be here, my friend, and uh, congratulations again. Oh, good to, good to have you here, mate. We are the, uh, the new home for common sense commentary. Speaking of which, Gideon, yeah. um, do Victorians wish there was a third party they could vote in to get, back the, get their state back on track? Well, there are third parties. There are third parties that a lot of people, you know, for example, former uh, coalition supporters may have voted for at the federal election. Now, whether that translates into an increased uh, freedom-based upper house in Victoria on the crossbench, uh, we will wait and see. But look, the, the fundamental point is that I don't think this integrity stuff really shifts votes one way or the other. I think the Liberals will always have a harder time of it just because uh, there is a double standard with how these things are covered in the media and just people's perception. I think in Victoria, uh, to go back to Daniel Andrews, it's getting to the stage now where Labor is so entrenched in Victoria, so immovable uh, for various reasons uh, we don't have probably time to go into, but Labor is so entrenched that the city is almost becoming like, you know, Chicago or one of those Democrat-run cities where you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, uh, footsies with the public servants and the police and the media, you know, that, that's just accepted. That's priced into the stock of politicians. Uh, the Liberals, as I said, are ju judged to a vastly different standard for reasons, of, you know, uh, for various and complicated reasons. So I, I think this stuff wings Matthew Guy in a, w in a way that it doesn't wing Daniel Andrews. And in that context, if he is running an integrity agenda, which the Victorian opposition seems to be doing, uh, he had to be more careful than this. Well, let's, let's look at how this cosy relationship or, or the entrenchment of labour affects everyday life. There was a report last week mm. that shops in Frankston in Melbourne South were scared to open their doors because of constant mm. violence from kids as young as 11. And I've got to say that some of the streets in the Melbourne CBD didn't feel too safe last time I was down there either. Should crime be an issue in the election and what policies should be suggested to solve it, Gideon? Well, I mean, it should be an issue. It is a state election after all. Look, I'm sick of seeing this contagion, seeing, you know, federal candidates, for example, promising, as they did when I, in my time in organised politics, CCTV TV cameras and uh, police station upgrades. Those are the kind of things that state elections should be fought for. But more than just this port barrelling of, you know, security infrastructure and police infrastructure, in particular electorates, I'd like to see us look at, you know, for example, the Liberal Party often runs a uh, tough on crime narrative didn't work so well for Matthew Guy last time, but I think it's something that the Liberals have brand equity on. But being tough on crime means reducing crime, and the Institute of Public Affairs has historically done a lot of research on the way in which we can reform the criminal justice system to increase rehabilitation, um, to you know, to, to make to lower recidivism and things like that. But I'll just finish on this point though. Uh, Joe Hildebrand once tweeted something to the effect that every social issue, including crime, can be traced back to disadvantage. And when you see the Victorian government that took a sledgehammer to the economy, uh, screwed up young people mentally by locking them up and, and out of school for two years, when you see inflation going through the roof, uh, this crime is, is not necessarily due to lack of policing, although the police have skewed priorities at the best of times in this state. It is because of uh, our flailing economy, and we will see it get a lot Worse. So to people in Victoria, do what I'm doing, which is take steps now uh, to protect your family and your property, because this is about to get worse. Is it getting worse under Dictator Dan, though? I mean, can you can you draw it back to, to Dan Andrews himself? 
Yeah, of course you can. If for no other reason, look what Dan did to the state of Victoria for the last two years. He took a city, and I was living on Spencer Street at the time, right in the CBD. He reached the cold, dead hand of government, reached into the heart of the city and ripped it out. Uh, that the, the consequences of that are not going away uh, just because you build a few new headspace centres or some gimmicky thing like that. I'm not saying headspace doesn't do good work, but the government cannot destroy people mentally with one hand and rebuild them with the other. These are complex issues. And, and the societal and economic war crime that has been done to this state for the last two years, in particular, in addition to all the other bad economic policies and all the other ways in which uh, disadvantage in this state is getting worse, just like in Chicago and in Democrat cities in the US, uh, that the natural byproduct of that is a whole range of social issues, not the least of which is crime. So yes, this can be uh, brought back to the fact that Victoria has been brought to its knees and it has been damaged, and that damage will manifest itself manifest itself in a series of aftershocks that we will see for a very, very long time to come. Well, let, let's look at the way our woke overlords do try to keep us safe. There was a crime mm. committed by the executive director of the Victorian Division of the Property Council of Australia recently. She cracked some sort of joke about her fake tan not being dark enough to be Indigenous or Indian. Now, the context of this joke is difficult to know, and frankly, I don't think it should matter. But let's assume she wasn't inciting hatred against our Indigenous or indi indi Indian brothers and sisters. Gideon, you're one of Australia's leading advocates for free speech. Should this woman have lost her job over this harmless joke? No, of course not. Of course not. At worst, you know, maybe the HR department could have taken her out at the back and given her a roughing up or something. But this is the... It's not just the fact that good people are losing their jobs over this kind of thing, although that is the, the, the case, right? Um, it is the fact that every incident like this sends a signal to everybody else in the organisation. And as a result, and I often say, you know, living here in Caulfield now, I'm living in a, you know, young professional area, reasonably, you know, e educated people, you know, not tradies, not battlers, not, um, you know, people who would, uh, we would think about being in the silent majority of this stuff, you know, inner city people, and they are frustrated that in their jobs in tech and in accounting and everything else, they start every meeting with a welcome to country. Mm. They, uh, you know, get hung, drawn and quartered over uh, drink, uh, jokes like this. There are all manner of uh, game, gimmick games and gimmickry around pronouns and stuff like that. Um, you know, eventually the emperor's clothes will fall off. Eventually people, uh, you know, not just, again, people on the outside, not just outside, everybody. I think everybody or 95% of people can see how petty and idiotic and uh, puritanical a lot of this stuff is. Uh, there will be a pushback. But in the meantime, what can you say about sad stories like this? Well, from freedom of speech to voice to parliament, will the voice to parliament solve mm. anything for the most disadvantaged people in Australia, Gideon? No, it won't, and that's not the way it's being designed. It is a, you know, I'm old enough to remember a lot of symbolic gestures that were supposed to solve everything. First, it was reconciliation in the 90s. Then it was the national apology in the early 2000s. Uh, now there's the voice to parliament, the idea of a treaty, the truth-telling commission, which, I mean, I mean, the, the name should give it away, just an Orwellian uh, Centre for Historical Revisionism. I'm not saying that it, it'll fabricate history or anything, you know, uh, out there like that. But I'm very, very uh, conscious of a government truth-telling commission in any form. Um, but uh, again, this voice to parliament thing, it is, I, I, it will go down in flames. Uh, I don't want to see it reach a referendum because it is inherently divisive. If it does go to a referendum, well, I think Australians will push back. I think this will be like the Brexit vote or the Trump vote. This will show the governing elite, uh, that people are not about to vote race into the constitution uh, 50 years after taking it out or 60 years after taking it out. Uh, I think Australians will, will fundamentally reject the principle of awarding certain civil and political rights based on race. Okay, let's talk about Victorian politics. Um, Robert Gottliebson had an interesting story recently. He wrote about a report that was written eight years ago, which found a massive reserve of natural gas in the Gippsland region near the Longford Treatment Plant and the East Coast Pipeline Network. It contained the equivalent of 60% of the gas extracted from Bass Strait over the past 50 years. But, and here's the clincher, the report was ignored by then Premier Den Dennis Napthine and by his successor, the, the man you and I know <laughs> both love, Dan Andrews, who has since actually banned the act of even searching for gas onshore in Victoria. 
Gideon, what is it about Victorians that supposedly made them afraid of a cheap new supply of gas in 2014? Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's madness. But look, Fred, you, you and I you and I both know that it's becoming sort of political tradition in this country to squander the best assets we have. I mean, aside from Victoria, there is uh, somebody on my Telegram channel sent me a, a story not so long ago about um, a quarter of a trillion dollars in oil, I think it is, uh, located in South Australia. Now, that, that could that could make us energy independent for a generation, but nobody's going to touch that, of course. Uh, same thing here in Victoria. Uh, but as you said, the difference here in Victoria, I guess, is that we have a bipartisan commitment to energy insecurity. We had Dennis Napthine, who locked up these resources to begin with, uh, partly to appeal uh, appease green sensibilities. Well, how well did that work out for them? A one-term government lost to Daniel Andrews of all, you know, the people for Christ's sake. Uh, then you had Daniel Andrews actually write this ban, not just on drilling, on even looking for it, into the constitution. Now you have Matthew Guy who could be making a meal out of all, uh, the fact that we are, according to the, this isn't me from the IPA saying this, this is the Australian energy market operator saying Australia could just run out of gas, not expensive gas, not bills through the roof, could run out outright. Matthew Guy, rather than talking about that, or maybe, you know, God forbid, not closing and even reopening some coal power plants, uh, we have sky-high electricity prices in Victoria. We're talking about rationing, and Matthew Guy is matching or goading Labor into accepting a bigger 2030 legislated carbon target, the one that is 50%, that is higher than Anthony Albanese's target of 43%. So unfortunately for the people in Victoria, not only do we have this insane energy policy, but there is no voter choice in real terms. No major party is saying we will bring petrol price, uh, energy prices down by doing what Victoria does and does best. And that's very sad for everybody, but that's Victoria for you. Oh, what have they done to deserve it, Gideon? Now, quickly before you go, a very quick one. A recent report by Ambulance Victoria found that too many of its officers were white men and it's now actively seeking other types of people to do the job. Gideon, do Victorians who've been struck by a medical emergency or have been injured worry about the colour and gender of the person who will drive them to hospital? I, I always do. You know, if I broke my leg, I'd make sure that I had a diverse and, you know, no, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, uh, a, these obsessions with diversity and so on are, you know, asinine. It should be the best person for the job. I mean, that's all just common sense stuff. Um, but the other point about all this is this is a, this is the Victorian ambulance system we are talking about. This is not exactly the tightest running ship in Australia at the moment. And, and I, I, I feel bad almost making light of it. In fact, I shouldn't make light of it because for a lot of families, it is literally a life and death matter. We have code reds, uh, complete lack of ambulance resources declared every five minutes in this state. They have of all the things they should be worrying about, of all the things to be talking about right now, the diversity of ambulance drivers. I mean, this is too serious for that. I mean, almost everything is too serious for that, but especially this life and death situation that's been created by Daniel Andrews and this government that runs on keeping us safe. It is just perverse and absurd. You're, you're absolutely right, Gideon. Uh, it's easy to see these things as humorous, but in fact, they are um, to many families and, and many businesses a matter of life and death. Yeah. Gideon Rosner, thanks Correct. so much for your time. Thank you, my friend. Looking forward to next week. That's Gideon Rosner, who would be relishing the opportunity to vote out the Andrews government in Victoria if only there was a decent alternative to replace them. And before I go, I started the show by describing some of the reasons to be pessimistic these days. Well, we recently received news that should counter that. And the news comes with an amusing irony. In the last report, in the latest report from the International Energy Agency, the experts have admitted that coal production will hit an equal record high this year around the world. Coal prices are also at record highs. Allow me to say that again. The global demand, supply and price of coal are all at record highs. This means that despite the trouble in the world these days, Coal is continuing to help people around the world build things, power industries, and improve lives. Yes, this is the very sector that Albo, the Greens, and the Teal Independents want to destroy in the name of saving the planet from climate change. And Australia's coal companies and coal-rich states are reaping amazing dividends. We've seen Whitehaven Coal post a record $3 billion profit pushing its share price up 175% for the year.
Coal company Terracom enjoyed a record profit in its June quarter, with its share price up 420% over the last year. Other coal companies, including Stanmore Resources, also posted record gains. As a result, the Queensland government posted a record budget surplus in the 2022 financial year worth $1.9 billion. That's a huge turnaround from the forecast in last year's budget, which expected a $3.5 billion deficit. The Australian government posted a second consecutive record trade surplus in June on the back of iron ore, coal and liquefied gas exports. And even China is now seriously considering lifting its ban on Australian coal in anticipation of the upcoming Northern Hemisphere winter, which could propel hundreds of millions of Chinese peasants into energy poverty. The Labor Party's response? Well, Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek is proposing to block Clive Palmer's coal mine near Rockhampton in Queensland on environmental grounds. You sure they're not political grounds, Tanya? By the way, Australian coal is the cleanest in the world. And if our coal exports decrease, they will only be replaced by inferior coal from Indonesia. Not only that, but Australia's coal mining companies have the best environmental record in the world for mine development and rehabilitation. This is the problem with Australia's political and corporate elites. While our miners and blue collar workers quietly produce Australia's major source of wealth, some people in parliament and corporate headquarters are plotting to shut them down, despite also reaping the benefits from these industries themselves. It's even weirder in the United States. The US Senate has just passed Joe Biden's euphemistically named $740 billion Inflation Reduction Act, which Biden himself says, quote, makes the largest investment ever in combating the existential crisis of climate change. It addresses the climate crisis and strengthens our energy security, creating jobs, manufacturing solar panels, wind turbines and electric vehicles in America with American workers. He went on and on, quote, it pays for all this by establishing a minimum corporate tax so that our richest corporations start to pay their fair share, unquote. If the way this kind of idea panned out in Europe recently is any guide, it's the poor who will be paying their unfair share of this kind of folly. Thank goodness for our coal exports. Even Albo would secretly agree with that. Well, that's it from me. Remember, tell your friends to download our app from their usual device or TV app store where all our content is available live and on demand and better, it's free. And I'll see you tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Good night.